And asking myself that question is really what my process has been like. What am I learning? Who was who teaching me this? Where is this stemming from? We are in another episode of the Living Out Loud discussion series. And today we are talking about intersectional identities and isms, the ones that we often don't talk about in the work of DEI. I am your host, Charmaine Nuts, a relational DEI expert, and we are openly unpacking real life scenarios and issues that come up in our interactions with each other in different professional settings. The goal of every single episode is to reveal the layers and the nuances in our interactions with each other so we can learn about them as a community that cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. As always, the thoughts, views, opinions shared in this episode, they are my own and not as a representative of any of the agencies that I work for or am contracted by. Joining me today is Jesse Prado. Uh, Jesse was one of my students in the MSW program at Dominguez Hills, and they have such an expertise that really challenged me and encouraged me and invited me to learn about things more deeply, more broadly, and just always struck me as someone who we need to learn from. And I invited them to an episode to share uh, their expertise, how it came about and different experiences and workplaces or maybe even college settings that can help us think differently about the work that we're doing. And so what I really like to do is just model what it looks like, even though I have been doing this work for over 10 years, it's possible to learn from people who we might not traditionally view as experts because of their length of time in the field or whatever other standards and norms we'd like to place on it. I've already learned from Jesse, and I am certain that other people can too. So thanks for joining. So glad that you are here. Thank you for having me. This is fun. new for me, for sure. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm certain that it's a different experience. Uh, would you mind just sharing the, anything about yourself that you would want us to know? Yeah, as you mentioned, I was a student of yours, so I am a recent MSW graduate um, from Cal State Dominguez Hills that um, I specialized in community mental health, which has always been one of those things that have stricken me as an important or my calling for the most part. Mm -hmm. I am a mental health advocate. I love challenging dominant perspectives. I feel like I will forever be a forever learner. So professional growth is always one of those things that I aspire to put in the forefront of what I do. I'm, I specialize in topics on LGBTQIA+, BIPOC, size and non-traditional, yeah, non-traditional relationship structures. Intersectionality is another specialization of mine. I am a first-generation queer Salvadorian graduate. <laughs> and I'm currently offering all affirming spaces of mental health or therapeutic kind of environment for youth in South LA. Yeah. Nice, nice. As you were talking, I realized there's probably going to be these little moments, just like little nuggets that we can pull out so people know the things that we're talking about. Because you say a lot of words that I, <laughs> you say words that People might, I know for me, I'm like, okay, I might need to look that up, right? I asked you a lot. Can you say what that exactly means? 
So for people who don't know what all affirming is, I think we can make assumptions. Yeah. Could you just describe that a little bit? Yeah. So all affirming is taking every perspective, every ism, every walk of life into account when interacting in spaces, whether it's professional spaces like being a clinician or just even being an overall human, where you take into account people's race, people's spirituality, their gender, their sexual orientation, their relationship structures, and really encompassing all of that in the way that you interact. Mm. Okay. Thank you. I already was. And that's as we need to, we can do that. I think that's also modeling what it looks like to pause people and say, hey, can you share a little bit more about that? I'm certain people don't know what that term is or, again, can make assumptions about what it means. I am very aware that I was your instructor. And while we no longer have that relationship, I imagine that could bring up, I don't know, some feelings or thoughts about our dynamic and. I I don't know if anything exists for you that would prohibit you from like showing up and being your authentic self and sharing whatever it is you want to share. But I want to name that is part of something that exists. So mm-hmm. is there anything present right now that'd be helpful for us to just lift up and be aware of that could make it an equal space? No, it does feel like an equal space. I think you've provided that from day one I, when I had you on a class. So it, as the semester kind of progressed, it felt more genuine. I think at first it was for me just reaching out because I felt like, and I, we've discussed this, where I felt like I was still getting my grounding and there was a lot of inner struggles of trying to like name and really work through. I'm also a professional. I am also an expert in something. So I do have things to contribute. And it's just ripping that bad date and saying, no, I'm a contributing member of this profession. You, thank God, you absolutely are. Of course, I'm not the only one that was learning from you in class. It was just so many nuggets. And not just that. You have a lot of expertise, but the way you are you, Mm -hmm. uh, and not necessarily hiding parts of you you were you every day in your knowledge and who you are and what you were dealing with sometimes you had great days other days you were not having great days and all of those were okay I think you really contributed to the safety that was being built and the trust that was being built in the classroom I don't know if you're aware of that but I just remember that being like a really cool part of you I wasn't aware of that I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's, it's really cool to see it when it, when it happens. So, all right. I think the first place that we can start is what have been your experiences in workplaces or college settings? I feel like they are, college settings and workplaces have very similar dynamics. I don't think we always make that connection. The dynamics are very similar. The question is, what are the things that you are seeing in workplaces that aren't getting acknowledged? There's a few things that do come to mind that for me has been something I'm wanting and continue to explore post-grad, um, which is the conversations of non-traditional sort of relationship structures, what is referred to as 
ethical or consensual non-monogamy or sometimes polyamory, uh, which I'll just refer to as ENM. And also conversations of sizeism or even the impacts of stepping away from biological families and putting a big emphasis in chosen family. These three topics have been one of those things that as I have been in in a student place, but our, as I was a student at Dominguez Hills, I didn't see that be talked about as much. And it transferred over into spaces where I was a professional, where I was an intern, and even those conversations didn't really get brought up. While I was still going to school, in the job settings, it was things that I would bring to the table where we talked about it and discussed it, or sometimes my turmoil of wanting to bring it up made me feel uncomfortable that sometimes I sat with that and realized no that was something that I should have challenged a little so that has been where it's been more prominent being at the center I feel like that's where I built amongst my people where we talked about these things because conversations of being any sort of queer in the spectrum like whether you were wherever your sexuality or gender kind of Latin, it wasn't, it was talked about, but I feel like it gave space for us to discuss other things like that. And I think one of the things that was really impactful was sitting in a training where we talked about sizeism and how in a group of maybe 20, 30 of us, there was only a handful of us I mentioned that it is in their curriculum. And even then they only talked about it for like a day or two at most. Seeing that, I brought it to the table. I brought it to professors and we've discussed it. And even then it it was, yeah, like we know about that. But I'm like, we know is not the same as let's talk about this. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's, we know racism's a thing. We get it. Thank you for bringing it up to us. And then just letting it stay there. And not that racism is the same as other things, but one, one of the things that you and I had talked about was when we start to make space for other parts of who we are, other identities, it can really feel like there's some sort of competition between them. Like they all don't get, if there's airtime here, then that means that the other stuff isn't as important. Or why are we talking about this? Because this needs to be addressed. And I think that all of, there's room for everything. I believe that's part of why you're probably getting the responses that you're getting, where if you lift something up, the other parts that we're really paying attention to feel so significant. It feels like, how am I going to throw that in there too? It feels like that. Even as, as me, as someone who does that, someone who is constantly intaking information. When you spoke in the classroom and brought up several things, I then thought, how am I going to, how am I going to weave this in? Like, how does, because it can't just live as you shared it in the classroom and then it goes away. What? But it was a thought, active thought process and still translating to me having to make changes later into stuff. So I wanted to name that. This is a space where just because we're talking about the things we are talking about, we are not saying that other stuff isn't important. All other isms and all other parts of our identities and life experiences are very much important to who we are. And depending on the person, depending on the context, some may feel more 
important or relevant at the time. So today we're really zooming in on what you are bringing to the table is something we just have not been thinking about. And it could be helpful, too, because you're, you're talking about terms, again, that I believe a good amount of people know. But in terms of like workspaces or college settings, it's not talked about enough to where we can really understand what we're talking about. So I'd really like to start to unpack what those are for a bit and then like how they even show like why is it even relevant to employees today and so that way we can like really paint a good picture of why this is relevant for people to even be aware of so when you i think the first thing you were talking about was let's just start with sizeism like sizeism is a thing we can make assumptions could you just share what that is and like why does it matter to people at work yeah, for sizeism, a big part of it is just understanding that there's a lot of systemic barriers for folks that are not within the means of what's considered healthy, which in in it, the word in itself has changed for years. If we think about how health was seen back in the 20, 20th century, not the 20th century, but in the 1920s, being what would be considered a little bit on like the fluffier side where there was a little bit more fat in someone's body was considered healthy. Whereas now having any sort of a large percentage of, I'm getting stuck, but just even having like a, a bigger body was, or is seen currently as being unhealthy or having more health issues. So when we think of sizes and we think about it in how it comes up in environments of, or in spaces of, privilege right so thinking about spaces where you go to the movie theater someone that is of a slimmer body doesn't necessarily have to think about am i going to be able to fit in the seat whereas someone that's a little bit larger bodied would have these thoughts of oh okay so if i can't sit here how can i adjust my body to fit in the space that's an example of where it shows up another way can be thinking about having access to certain things like life insurance where Someone that's in a bigger body that there's a lot of concerns of health issues. So then that might be that the policy would be more expensive for someone that is of a larger body than a smaller body. So then when we think of sizeism is really considering in what spaces or in what environments does someone in a bigger body have to consider multiple aspects that someone that has a smaller body doesn't really have that mental space to really process or really even consider, oh, am I going to be able to go on a plane ride and con consider having to purchase two tickets? So in those spaces, it's really considering sizeism is just the, the overarching-ism of not taking all people's bodies into account. So really unpacking that, addressing that, and really just focusing on having those conversations of why is that an issue why is that a concern yes yeah and as you were talking i'm just i'm thinking about so many different situations that i've seen in various professional settings where comments are made it's they're not part of the inclusive umbrella oftentimes when i say that it, it can mean a lot of things it can mean something as simple as when we're doing trainings there's not like a real diversity of different body types in the images that we're using that's just one very very small tangible thing but I think what I hear, it's more what I hear, yeah. probably than anything else, is how the words that we use to refer to people, jokes we make, 
compliments that we give people that reinforce the preference for smaller body sizes and these types of comments exist all the time and just to give like super tangible example for people i know that if there are comments about praising people for losing weight saying that they look good saying that they look healthier telling them to keep doing what they're whatever it is and that's just to one person we don't know what that person's journey is or what that means we don't know what it means to other people around But in that moment, we really are sending the message to people that if you are getting smaller, that means a lot of great things. And therefore, that also means some other stuff for people that might not be in that particular category. That's just one example. But there are so many things that are said and done. And I'm thinking about the impact of people in these settings. The impact of the message is that there's something wrong with your body. You don't look good. You're not a healthy person. You're not whatever it is. There are messages that we are sending to people without really realizing it. So the language that we use to refer to people, our frame of reference, the jokes we make have an impact that we're not really paying attention to. So I wanted to lift that up. And I imagine that you've seen, experienced, whatever, like some versions of this. So anything you want to add to that? Yeah, for, and I also want to take into account that it's not just about like folks that are in larger body, but also taking into account folks that have much, much smaller bodies that folks don't necessarily even consider as healthy. So um, a lot of times even praising folks that are of much slimmer bodies and not taking into account that maybe the person struggling with trying to gain weight and being of what would be more of a healthier appearance or healthier physiological where their body would need to be at because there's biological factors there's sometimes trauma that comes into effect so I do also want to take into account that the opposite spectrum is also there and Mm. there's issues where sometimes we praise folks that are much smaller bodies and letting them know hey what are you doing to continue being so small and not taking into account that just even asking a simple question like that can be very impactful Mm -hmm. and there's it's not just necessarily in just being in a bigger body it's it comes in spaces that is pretty much overarching that you are not in the I don't want to call it in the middle because there is no necessarily middle but it's just what we see as healthier bodies continues to shift so in those places i want to also take into account that it's not just about the bigger bodies it's also the other end of it and um i feel like a lot of it is through that training that i learned a lot of that language a lot of that understanding that being very mindful of the words that we use Hmm. and sometimes understanding that certain words don't work for everyone there's going to be folks that if you say heavy might just bring up things for them whereas for other people even just saying the word bigger body or larger body it's just that language it continues to shift because it's trying to find that good medium always becomes an issue Mm -hmm. so in those ways i see myself really trying to learn a lot of like okay this works for folks this doesn't work for folks and how can I continue to like 
be very intentional about the words that I use, whether that means that I have to take a moment to like really process, okay, what am I trying to bring? What am I trying to say without just going straight to and when, with something that you mentioned, going straight into complimenting their struggles of losing weight or even understanding that it's not always about weight and stepping away from that and really taking into account that because there's such a large issue with or there's a, such a large topic on really focusing on people's weights and people's bodies that this is why it's odd where there's a lot of normalizing talking about losing weight, but there's not a lot of normalizing about how do we step away from that and really focus on why is that an issue? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for you know, widening our view on even this topic. It's just a really great example of the inclusivity, being inclusive about the things we're being inclusive about. And yeah, it's just, I'm also just thinking when these conversations come up, it often makes me wh like, why are, why are we talking about, sometimes it might matter if we have personal relationships and we know what it is that we're talking about, we're checking out, sometimes it makes sense. But I'm not talking about like those types of situations, you know, it could be like an all staff meeting or in a, in a, an individual, whatever it is, they just come up in these like really interesting ways that don't always make sense to even say, like, why do we have to say something? What's up with the comment about it's not a necessary addition to the conversation? Sometimes it's not even an addition to the conversation. It's just a personal thought we want to say out loud to people. So it, it does make me think about being aware of too, why are we even? Doesn't make sense for this context at all. Am I just adding it in? And why am I doing that? And where is it coming from? And what is the impact feels incredibly important. And you're right. There's enough information and people telling their stories out there now to know that a body type does not indicate health or wellness in any shape or form. Like the most, there are so many of the most fit, healthy people in the world who are sharing that at their fittest there, they were their most unhealthiest. So there's, it's a super complex part of people. And our comments about it are often unwarranted, unnecessary, not helpful, not context appropriate. So if there's any like tangible thing to, to, I think there's a lot of tangible things. One of the things is if you're in like for these professional settings, I think it's helpful to think about why is this happening? Does it belong here? What's the impact? And the other thing I'm just really honing in on from what you were saying is it is super individualized as many other things. We're going to keep learning languages as it evolves and people are going to have their preferences for how to refer to things. As you're talking, I'm picking up on the language that you prefer, but I also acknowledge that when people listen to this, the, the words aren't going to work for everybody. That's okay. We're normalizing talking about it. And I would hope that people continue to share the things that work for them because it's not a comp it's not a competition of which one is more important. It's what this is why relationships are important. This is why we really lean in with relational DEI because we need to know that people and who they are to 
interact with them in a way that's responsive to who we are as unique people. So I thank you for taking that. I don't know if it was, I don't even know if we planned to do that. I just thank you. It comes up so much. The other thing you mentioned was the non-traditional relationships, not non-traditional families. And if we could talk about that too and why that's relevant to the workplace, I imagine we'll touch on some similar things in terms of everybody's individualized, but can we just expand a little bit? Like when we say non-traditional families, what is this entailing? So in terms of, you were talking about in workspaces and non-traditional families. I guess the way that I was initially thinking about that, I was thinking about it more in the spaces of educational purposes. And I think when I really started thinking about how it shows up in workspaces, I'm still working on that myself. Like, how do we have conversations of not wanting to be close to relatives that traditionally are seen as this is your parent, you need to be close to them or you need to take them into account. And a lot of it is having to understand and really sit with folks on letting them just tell their stories and not pushing these ideas of that's your mom. Why do you not like inviting these conversations that people might not necessarily be comfortable talking about? Because there's a lot of it there. There can be just disconnects with family members based on conflicts, based on traumas, based on experiences, based on just really understanding that as we start getting more in tune on where we are, developing our interests, developing ourselves as individuals, we to some degree start learning that it is okay to choose having these very strict boundaries around who and what you're willing to invite into your life. And in workspaces, sometimes it can be very difficult talking about not really engaging in family events. And what comes to mind sometimes it's holidays and just talking about, oh, what are you going to do with, you know, are you going to go visit your families during the winter? Are you going to go visit your family during Thanksgiving? And mm-hmm. in itself, when in workspaces, taking these things into account on how do we invite conversations and normalizing that sometimes folks don't necessarily need to go out and spend aching hours with biological families or blood family that really just feels like it's over at, overly taxing for them. Mm-hmm. So that's in how I see having these type of conversations come up in workspaces. Whereas in more on the higher ed, I think that there isn't much focus on teaching folks the importance of chosen family. For myself, I see it more in spaces or with people that identify in any sort of like LGBTQI plus community where a lot of it is finding your people, finding the people that really feel like family and really using them as a representation of you feeling comfortable of finding a safe space for you to be able to grow and develop where you're stepping away from rejection, you're stepping away from having to feel like you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. So in higher education, I feel like there isn't a curriculum on that. There isn't talks about the importance on that. And if there is, it's just always very limited in the sense of, oh, yeah, sometimes chosen family can be very important for folks. And then you move on. 
And there needs to be more. There needs to be more talks and more discussions on why is that a thing? Why is that important? Why can't we normalize not having to feel like folks need to just to the family structures that have to do with the folks that birthed them or the families that are based on blood? So in those settings, that's where I feel like it's really important to really have these type of discussions. And even understanding that the chosen family can sometimes have people that are relatives that they themselves can choose to just, hey, these are my top five folks and maybe only two of them are really my blood folks and the rest of them are people that I've met that have really helped develop me as who I am. Yeah, like all your really, if I just took everything that you said and just conceptualized it for myself, it's a great example of how this is another complex part. When we talk about intersectional identities, every part of who we are has its own complexities. And if I were to zoom out and think, okay, I'm someone, I'm a professional, or I'm trying to do differently, what does this really mean for me? What I was hearing in there is something I see a lot, and that's people ask a lot of leading questions. And we could be better about asking more open questions. So when I say leading question, we ask, are you going to go do this with family? Are you going to, we ask questions with our lens and we, we already put like a category on it because we associate holiday, I'm just going to use yours, holidays with families, yeah. which could be the case for a lot of people, could be the case for you, but isn't the case for everybody. When we ask leading questions, we could unintentionally be bringing some stuff up for people that we don't know developing our ability to ask more open questions curious questions that gives people space to answer outside of the box that we set for them can be very helpful if there's time coming up i know i've still been working on it when time's coming up i don't even know if people celebrate the things that i be celebrating i'll be like hey we have some time coming up and in my mind it's coming the question it's coming out to just ask exactly what you're saying it's literally processing and i'm like don't ask what <laughs> so then i say stuff that sounds like hey we have some time coming up you got any plans going on it's just you got any plans going on you could say whatever you want whatever but if i ask hey thanksgiving is coming up are you spending it not only is it the family it's the thanks there's other parts going on here something that people could really do is learn to ask open questions that do not put people in a box. And then you don't have to worry so much about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. You get to hear how people are explaining their lives to you. And then you can use the words that they're using to engage back. Because if I asked you the similar question and said, hey, there's some time coming up. Do you have any plans, anything you're excited about? Maybe not excited about. You're going to say whatever you say. I'm going to go here with my wife. I'm going to go here with blah, blah, blah. Or no, I'm not going to do anything. It's going to be a terrible time. Whatever you decide to say, you can say. So I know it. Let me just stop there. I think I can go in a lot of different places. I tend to do that in my mind. But that was just like, we don't have to put people in boxes when we're talking to them. We can use way more open language and just be fine be just fine. Last little piece is the, you said NEM, ethical non-monogamy. So same thing, 
What are we talking about? And then we'll draw the connection to why does this even matter at work? So for ENM, there's so much. And I'm also still learning a lot from it. And in, a lot of it comes from personal experiences of leading groups, leading conversations, and leading in the most minimal way because it's really me sitting and listening to these folks that are experiencing it every single day of their lives and me understanding that a lot of it I've started to understand myself on where I fit in that and how it's come up or has not come up in a lot of spaces where I feel like it's really important to talk about. When I think about it in workspaces, a lot of it have to do with simple things like, for example, who are you bringing to the company picnic? Who are you bringing mm. to talk about going on holidays with? Uh, it just, there's so many nuances and a lot of it stems from biases. A lot of it stems from these stereotypes of what E&M relationship styles look like or what are their quote-unquote underlining reasons for wanting to engage in these sort of relationship structures. And a lot of it is just really a big based around biases of sexuality and wanting to be more explorative in terms of who they want to engage in those acts with or these ideas of wanting to be just unfaithful. And it doesn't really stem from that. It stems a lot from having these connected relationships with folks that traditionally might be frowned upon because we think about relationship privilege. We think about how we think of relationships being just two individuals being romantically together. And it not always like that. So in professional space in professional spaces, it really comes up in like discussing what it looks like to have a coworker that might have multiple partners and stepping away from and this goes beyond just like ENM, also considering just sexuality as a factor, like stepping away from using terms like wife and husband to going with spouses or significant others or whatever that might feel more comfortable to say because stepping away from that you're allowing folks to explore where they might be comfortable disclosing their relationship structures with you and in in professional settings or in workspaces it comes up not only in the conversations that we have but also it comes up in where we start offering like health insurance in where privilege or couple privilege comes in that, where a lot of times it's not giving an option of, okay, when you start signing up for health insurance, it has to be a significant other your or your dependents. So it doesn't give a lot of leeway to think about, I'm having these other folks that I want to put into my life, that I want to allow them to have coverage and you can't because it just isn't offered. Or sometimes it's, not wanting to engage in these conversations because of a lot of that, the comments that are made, a lot of the not wanting to come up in these spaces or come out in these spaces that it's not traditionally talked about. Mm -hmm. So when I think about what or how to engage those type mm -hmm. of conversations in workspaces is being open and intentional about not only the language that we use, but also intentional in having a very open mind without having to have to say these additional comments of, oh, but is it your, your significant other going to get upset? 
because you're seeing someone else more. A lot of it has understanding that even in folks in non-traditional sort of relationships or in a relationships, different. It looks different for everyone. Being curious is really important. Being mindful of sitting and taking that in. Again, going, stepping away from really wanting to say something or throwing your ideas of what it looks like. Allowing them to guide you in what they're willing to one share with you and to sitting with that. Sitting with it is really hard sometimes for individuals and acknowledging that. Um, but also understanding that folks might not want to be your your teachers. They might not want to teach you what this looks like and really being okay with that, which means not asking extra questions about what it is that they do with certain folks or yeah. not doing that. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. I, yeah, I, sorry, I have a bunch of thoughts and thinking about things that I've seen and heard myself. And in some way, like the other topics we're talking about, not having to ask these like leading questions or does it even make sense to even ask some of the things that we're asking. We ask people in, we ask people in non-monogamous relationships, things and questions we wouldn't ask other people. sometimes it can make sense if you're in a conversation and it makes sense but we just got a lot of like wonderings and questions that we would just ask because of the things we think and then what I've seen a lot though is because of the bias because the things that we associate with non-monogamy comes so much judgment and it comes out I've seen it come out whether people want it to or not there are beliefs that people have and it's cool if people have their beliefs. There's no problem. I have mine too. It doesn't mean that my belief somehow means that theirs is wrong. Mine is right for me. Theirs is right for them. And there's so much about ethical non-monogamy that people don't understand. Like how people even arrive to these different relationships. What goes into creating them and maintaining them and how other people know what's going on. There's just so many things that people don't know. I think a really great starting point for people is to learn about it. It's not something that people, I think people associate, I'm going to learn about ethical non-monogamy if I'm interested in, to me, people associate it with sex therapy or something or cake. And it's, it's like over here. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's, it's in this bucket. It's fine. It can be in the bucket, I guess. Other things can be in the bucket, but it's not a thing to have over in a bucket with some other stuff off to the side like all of those are parts of people that people do very intentionally safely ethically it's not what people are thinking it is yeah it's so at work if you are a professional i think a great starting point if you don't even know what this stuff is i I really think you should learn it because you said bias like the bias that we associate particularly with this just is just so not what it is step one please learn what that means and then two like the other stuff that we're talking about be aware of the language that we're using are we putting people into boxes with the language spouse is a great change and sometimes people don't even want to get married and that's fine too it's fine just being really aware of what we're using. So if we say, are there any important people in your life? People can't answer that however they choose to. I could be like, yeah, I have my cat. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you today. I have a cat that's in my life. I know it's a person, but not a person, but that's the answer to the question. It's just get good at asking open questions and let people answer it. And then you know where they're comfortable going and not, we don't have to put people into boxes. When we ask open questions, we help model what it looks like to be curious and not put people in boxes. And then for other people around, because we could be having individual conversations in a group space. We could be facilitating an experience with multiple people. And when we come in with these boxes, we could be doing so much unintentional stuff to people around so much because we don't know what people's stories are or struggles or whatever it was that got them to where they're at. Get really good at asking open questions. This is just, I just learned how to do that in practice. Yeah, also being very intentional about the things that we use in the language that's being used, being very mindful of questions that generate conversations of, oh, let's, let's do icebreakers, right? Being very intentional in that and reassessing in what ways or any of the things that we do, any of the tools that we use, being inclusive to folks that might not be in traditional or in non-monogamous relationships. Same thing that comes into mind is even being mindful of the tools that we use in families and thinking about who they would identify as part of their families. So really being more intentional of taking a step back and really exploring where are the gaps and why are the gaps there and how can we make sure that the language that we're using is leaving it, as you mentioned, these very open questions. Don't start with what is your gender, leaving a space that's open if possible for folks to be able to write what that looks like for them. What is your relationship or what is your status, right? Being very intentional about having these spaces where if it feels like you're warranted to put like single, married, et cetera, having a space where folks can type in what feels comfortable for them to identify themselves. I'm thinking about like social service organizations and there are going to be some changes that agencies can make and, and if you can do it. And there's some where I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about a response, right? Like social service agencies, there's forms they have to use and like we can't change to get that. Yeah. And there's also nothing wrong before giving somebody something to say, there's terminology on here that's not terribly inclusive. I'm sorry I'm having to use this, but please know that this paper is here to serve like this particular purpose, but that doesn't mean if you don't fit into these, that there isn't space for you to be able to share like what, who you, like not what you are, but who you are. So use it in the way that you need to as well. And, and I'm happy to talk with you about any of the stuff that isn't quite making sense because I want to learn more about you. We can say those things. So if we have to use tools that aren't necessarily with the times, that doesn't mean that we just have to keep doing things the way that we do it. It's okay to use old tools till they're updated and frame it right. And sometimes the tools aren't relevant anymore. So I'm not talking about those. Unrelevant tools, I don't even know if that's a word. But tools that are old that shouldn't be used, please don't use them. But if we have to for some reason, we can still talk about it. Jesse, you obviously have a lot of knowledge in these areas. I'm really curious, like, how did you arrive to this place of knowing the things that you know? And what was your own process of learning or unlearning things, whatever that was? So... How did it come to learn? 
I feel like I'm still unlearning a lot of it. And I honor and I really feel privileged to be in a space where I'm still like a baby social worker. And I continue to stay really curious about what not only what conversations around size or conversations around relationship structures or even family, just really being curious about what I know and challenging what I know, because that is what my process is to unlearning a lot of this and being very fortunate of being able to be in spaces where I can explore what that impact looks like, Um, which I feel like a lot of it have to thank my opportunity to intern at the LA LGBT Center because that's where the spaces were provided for me to explore these topics that have always been an interest of mine, but either didn't have the mental space to really explore it or just didn't feel like it was something that I needed to do at that moment. So being in that space, I was able to get a lot of knowledge that my peers didn't. And so that that kind of felt like I can be that person to generate these conversations, to guide these conversations, to bring it at the table and just be like, do what you can with that. I'm really grateful for the people in my life that have allowed me to be myself and explore what that looks like, which even though it wasn't necessarily in the curriculum, I feel like a lot of the times my professors were really good about like, all right, Jesse, let's talk about this. You brought it to the table. Um, so it has generated this community learning for myself and my peers in the spaces that I have been in. I don't know what it looks like outside of that, but I know that is where I've made sense of it, where I realized, yeah, this is a topic that needs to be talked about. This is a topic that why aren't we talking about it in our curriculum? Why aren't we talking about it in professional settings that we, especially in community settings where we're serving people, we're trying to be these models of what inclusive inclusivity looks like right these models of having these very tough conversations that is inclusive to all but then understanding that are we and asking myself that question is really what my process has been like it's been asking those questions of what am i learning who am who is teaching me this where is this stemming from And that has really become that foundation for me to keep exploring and honing down on what I want to bring to not only the profession as a social worker, but the profession as someone that I ultimately want to go and be like, hey, let's have these talks (laughs) because no one else is really comfortable in bringing them up. And I want to be okay with being uncomfortable. It's that shared knowledge. It's knowing that some folks might not be comfortable with it and that's okay. Hmm. You, there are some people in the world who are like totally fine with that space of whatever, I'm going to learn stuff and I might not know it all. And when I hear it, I'm going to shift. And I believe I'm one of those people. But the reason I'm really bringing this up is because I believe that people see people like us and think that it's easy or without struggle i don't know about you i'm about to ask you about you but for me while i'm fine with having this stance it's not always it's not always easy it like really requires me to be 
what am I going to do about this information? There's some, I have my own thing. I'm wondering, could you, if you, first, if, is this a thing that you experience? And if you could share the struggle too, I think, it, not that we're not human, but I really think people need to understand, we're, we understand it's hard too. Have you had any struggle moments with your learning process, even though you are okay with it? Yes. I, yes. <laughs> uh, short answer, yes. Um, <laughs> and I think a big part of it does come with being a person of color, being queer, being all of these intersectional identities that brings a lot of isms in my life that sometimes I've really made it difficult for me to want to bring up these conversations. <laughs> And continue to learn from myself that I'm, my expertise really lie in a lot of my lived experiences and in my willingness to want to bring in these conversations or bringing it to the table as whatever might come out of. And it's hard. It's still hard when I think of spaces where I'm someone that's new and how much of roughing the boat can I really do without necessarily having to feel like here i've only been here for a week this is what i think needs to get changed right in in those ways it still feels like i'm still having to sit with being uncomfortable or even bringing up being my own little cheerleader when someone has to do it and if it's not you like no one else is gonna do that and i don't necessarily say that in the sense where i have to be the only one that has to bring those conversations into the table and spaces that i'm in um and recognizing that sometimes that does come with my own sets of privileges because of not only my lived experience, but also going to like a graduate program, um, having a population in my school that is primarily folks of color and us all talking and discussing what our lived experience has been in this field. I more, I'm more comfortable in bringing them up versus in other spaces where I'm the new person there. And how can I bring that without feeling like it is my quote-unquote duty to do yes i can i get that a lot i want to add just one more layer to that question and do and ask it to model what it looks like for the true like inward reflection have there been any struggles with like you as a learner like you learning these different things anything there to help normalize that process too yeah, my a lot of the biases that come with any of this, right? Or the that uncomfortable feeling of who am I versus the sea of everyone else, right? Who am I? Who hasn't really published someone who's new to this field, who's really still finding that power in what I'm, what I know, and what I know is still something that's important to be said. A lot of the struggles come from knowing that there's a limited background in the sense of what I know, right? I am still trying to find more in terms of who I am as someone that wants to continue the conversations of size or even just having a bad day where I feel like, how do I come out of that fun to want to have these discussions yeah. or not yeah. even having that mental capacity and having to understand that it doesn't have to fall on me. <laughs> There are good days and there are bad days. There are good days where I'm like, okay, with knowing that it's engaging in, in conversations with others and normalizing that for myself is really a big part of it. 
Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that was like really cool to hear. And um, I appreciate you going there because I think it's helpful for people to see like what the self-reflection looks like and just have a peek inside of someone's learning process. I think that before we wrap up, is there anything else that we want to share with people that tools to add to their toolbox? Sitting with being uncomfortable. The big one for me because I'm still processing what that looks like and how I model that. But also being very intentional about having these conversations with individuals. I think sometimes there's a lot of what feels like talking to people, right? Here's what I've learned. This is what I, this is what you need to do, right? Whereas now it feels like let's collaborate. Having that open mind, understanding that because you're sitting with that and you're having these open discussions with individuals, you're collaborating, you're finding ways to challenge these, these beliefs that we might have about what size looks like, what non-monogamous looks like, what family structures look like. Yeah. Yes. I completely agree. Building people's capacity to be in discomfort is, oh my goodness, required. I, th I think it's the best way I could say that. It's required. It, none of this stuff is going to always feel good. And um, we are going to always be learning. We are. I learned some things today, too. To me, I, I've already said it a couple times in our convo, the biggest thing to me that people, if you learn to phrase your questions much more openly, that means you would have to think about how your questions are framed and why they're framed that way. But if you really learn to practice that, like I said, like it, the things go through my mind with my lens and then I have to realize, okay, that's what I think. How can I ask an open question? So I'm not saying don't engage with people if you don't understand it. It's not that. When you ask open questions, you're going to release yourself of a lot of the, like, the boxes that we put people in definitely and if the goal is you're wanting to connect with people learn who they are have better working relationships whatever it is and you open a much wider space for them to fill it you can understand the uniqueness of people in a much different way a much different way like i to me that's like the top of the list yeah and i hadn't necessarily thought about teaching that as a tool but that's a tool that I believe I will be teaching I honestly I appreciate this conversation it really it really lifted it up for me it's just a thing that people could really learn imagine just imagine if people learned how to ask way open way more open questions what would happen even in the areas we're talking about the areas we're not talking about if people got to fill in the space on their own Game changer. Thank you so much for being here with me and get me to really think. You always do that. You always get me thinking. I am certain that people benefit from this conversation. So if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way they can do that? They can check me out in LinkedIn. I will link your LinkedIn in the description. 
All right. If you are listening to this and found it valuable, please share this episode with people in your network. Share, subscribe on whatever platform is good with you. We're really encouraging, engaging in dialogue around the discussions that we're having. So take this and engage in discussions with the people in your network. That could be a supervisor, your teams, anybody. But just talk about what we're talking about and figure out like what that means for you. If you want to get in touch with me, you can go to my website at livingunapologetically.com. On there, there's all kinds of freebies. You can have access to my book, Bias Conscious Leadership, a framework for leading with action and accountability. You got links to all my socials and wherever you are, I can be. Let's be connected. Thank you so much for listening or watching and I hope to connect soon. Until then, bye.